How much has a cultural, a philosophical, or political thought interfered with your wholesale commitment to Jesus Christ? Cultural, philosophical, or political thought. How's it interfered with your commitment to Jesus Christ? Those things that do, we could rightly call idols. And there are plenty of them, are there not, in our culture today? We may not have the golden calf of Baal, but we have things that we hold over and above our allegiance to God. It's what makes Hosea so pertinent to us today. It is a difficult book to trudge through. And by trudge, I mean, are we doing this again? (laughs) God's word is written for our edification. Meaning, I don't think we get the option of just skipping over parts we don't like. Oh, people do that. I get that. But I think for our own good, we work through some of these difficult subjects and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. And that's really what what this is about as we look at Hosea 8 and finish it up. So Father, we invite you to work in our hearts deeply that we can be honest about the idols that are there and that you would choose to transform us. Father, it seems we either make an error of being too soft unwilling to draw a line in the sand about things that your scripture speaks clearly about, or we get judgmental um, and we're jerky in the way that we treat people. We don't like either of these options. So I pray that you would help us as a people that we can affirm truth with humility with meekness and lowliness. Because that's how Jesus would have done it. We thank you for his example. We give you freedom to move in our midst as you see fit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. With the tsunami that hit in 2004 in Indonesia, Over 167,000 people died. Isn't that an amazing stat? Yet on the island of Simelue, only seven people perished, even though they were in the heart of the tsunami. The reason was because of an institution on the island called Smong, S-M-O-N-G. It's a storytelling tradition in which elders tell stories to the children of the island. Every story ends with this warning. 
If a strong tremor occurs, and if the sea withdraws soon after, run to the hills, for the sea will soon rush ashore. So when a strong tremor occurred and the sea withdrew, everybody upon the island knew the gravity of the situation and they knew what to do. Now, if the storytelling institution of Smong had been treated with less than seriousness, it would have meant loss of life, but they did treat it seriously. Modern society could have easily led to this tradition being abandoned, but the institutions remained strong and lives were saved. The wisdom from the past paid dividends in the future. I think America has its own tsunami, as it were, in the form of a worldview, an ethos, a way of thinking that individual autonomy and freedom are not to be trifled with. It's the holy grail of American society. Any institution, religious or not, that challenges an individual's autonomy is to be eradicated. And I think it's the Western church that is finding it increasingly difficult to disseminate a message about an exclusive gospel in the midst of this kind of culture. Obedience to God, commitment to community, that's a, that's a tough call. Hmm. It's a dirty word. Think about the garden. Adam and Eve, they proclaimed autonomy from God and they paid for it. The same happened with Satan and the fallen angels in the heavenly realm claiming autonomy from God. And so it is with the church today. As people scramble to speak a language to a tech world that can address any need on the web and live under the illusion of an autonomy from God. And you can follow the breadcrumbs right back to the garden. Now, I suppose we can choose to be depressed about this and throw up our hands and say, well, what do we do? Or you can see this as a tremendous opportunity for the church, for us to develop a cohesive worldview to convey that, to demonstrate a freedom that is tethered to an image of God quality for each and every person who deserves value and personhood, regardless of their choices. We communicate that as a church. We can have strong convictions that are based in the word, but still approach people with great humility. Victims caught in this tsunami of thought that I've spoken of with this personal autonomy, they can benefit from the story of Christ's redemption in the gospel. That's what we share in our village. And that's what people need. Not just some far off story of 2,000 years ago, but a present story that provides redemption, that gives a cohesive worldview as to why 
we can have hope and relate to one another with value. The fact is, I think the Western church has been enculturated, taken in the culture, bowing to the idol of autonomy. Even those within the church have difficulty wrapping their mind around any truth claim because something that makes a claim of an exclusive gospel or some other clear directive in the Bible, it's just too restricting. Hmm. So what I'd like for to, to do is just repeat and uh, review some basic concepts that we have tethered together before from years of messages, but put it in just succinctly. Number one, accepting God's ability to convey a message to us is not unreasonable. We believe that God exists, and we believe that if he does, he has the ability and the power to communicate to us clearly. He can use human language and is able to overcome whatever boundaries necessary to convey his message. And we have a wonderful example of that with Wickliffe Bible translators that we just saw. But because evil exists, the message is going to be denigrated. It's going to be defiled. There'll be fakes. There'll be claims of salvation never communicated by God, but mankind will make those claims. Now, I'm not here to point the finger at anyone, but merely to logically point out that if truth exists, then by definition, there will be things that are false. Right? Uh, if I go to the doctor and the doctor, um, and I have a tumor, uh, the doctor would be right to tell me that I have cancer. But if he tells me, you know, all I have is a cold, we would say that is false. That is not reality. Right? Since truth exists, so does air. A red light is a truth about living in a material world with traffic. And I oblige that truth by stopping at the red light. And if I choose to ignore that truth or reality, I can cause great damage to myself or others. I would suggest that the truth of God is no different. Along these lines, there does not exist a more historically referenced record of God's wisdom than the Bible and in the testimony of Jesus Christ. We've been given God's record of reconciliation with mankind in the Bible, and I've devoted my life to teaching that and making that clear to this congregation so that we can be guided by God's wisdom. But when we worship at the idol of autonomy, we refuse to acknowledge God's clear proclamation. The challenges are political correctness that challenges our allegiances, that challenges our legalism, and a host of other thought patterns that work against us. And the New Testament tells us this is where much of the spiritual battle takes place, is in our thoughts. So Hosea is a record of what happens when God's people ignore his wisdom. Now, to a person enculturated, this seems like it's way too harsh. But from God's perspective, this sin is egregious. 
And I want to suggest, so it is with us today as well, our idol worship. God judged their sin, and we had a record of it. And I want to suggest that he judges our sin today as well. And this is part of our testimony. So let's all stand and look at this passage in Hosea 8. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, though they hire allies among the nations. I will soon gather them up. And the king and the princess shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars of sinning, they have become to him altars of sinning. Write write for him my laws by the ten thousands. They would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and I will devour her strongholds. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. I ask for your Holy Spirit to somehow use this vessel to communicate clearly and accurately what your word has to say and that your Holy Spirit will take that and use it to bring whatever is needed for each and every individual heart. We thank you for your word that's true. May our lives live under it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. Israel is compared to a cup or a dish that has been emptied of its content. It is a cup or vessel that is now useless because it's broken. Remember, Israel has paid money to Assyria for protection. Instead of going to Jehovah God for protection, having their faith in God, they have gone to a neighboring country. And all this makes Israel weak and desperate. They are destined to be dismissed dismissed as if off into a garbage dump. We read this out of Jeremiah. Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I've paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove swallow. And crane keep the time of their coming, but my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes have made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From profit 
to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Those are some strong words. Those have words to our culture today, do they not? There's much I could comment on about that, but let that just undergird and reread that maybe later and, and meditate upon that. Verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Assyria is the country that Israel hired for protection. This was like rejecting God as the husband, as the protector. Israel prostituted itself to another nation. Ephraim, of course, is a chief tribe in Israel, and it's synonymous with Israel. They became like a wild donkey. What's a donkey known for? Independence. Rejection of restrictions. Israel was now like a lonely creature left to fend for itself. If freedom and autonomy are indeed the idol of the West, and I mean the worship of it, I mean unrelenting freedom, I mean autonomy to where I get to determine what is right and true, not God, then how does this cause this idol worship to wander when I am just allowing my pleasure, myself, to dictate. I want to turn to a most unlikely source to maybe even cast a mirror upon ourselves. And that source is Al-Qaeda. Here's a piece from Jennifer Williams who wrote in the publication foreign affairs, and I quote, one of the significant problems facing Al-Qaeda was the lack of discipline and commitment being shown by new recruits from wealthier, more developed countries. The ascendancy of the self driven by the West was having an effect upon the terrorist organization. The battle-hardened leadership of Al-Qaeda was tearing out their hair, trying to manage recruits who would turn up to training one day and not the next. Instead of planning attacks upon the West, Al-Qaeda members were having to waste time dragging recruits back from their shopping sprees at local markets, repeatedly telling them to stay off their phones. Recruits exhaustively trained and groomed for missions, but would simply one day disappear like ghosts, having lost interest. Al-Qaeda's much-lauded network decentralized organizational structure was useless in, in dealing with this ghost-like commitment. We have some other problems like dissent and lack of discipline, wrote one of bin Laden's deputies in exasperation to his commander, complaining that these new recruits do as they wish and roam in the markets. They are not associated with any group and they have no obedience. Sometimes some of them participate in jihad while others make no contribution to jihad. A solution to the problem they represent has escaped us. 
but we are still trying. It's no wonder that in the last video of Bin Laden released, we see him silently watching television in a dark room, draped in a blanket, a fragile, tired man leading a fragile, tired movement. End quote. Let me suggest that whether people are in Al-Qaeda or a church, they are still the product of a culture of idols. And you're only naive, well, I shouldn't say you're not just naive, but it's naivety that thinks idols are not impacting the church. They are here. Verse 10, though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Israel has hired Assyria and its leaders for protection. The burden of the king and the princes is the yearly tribute of money and allegiance required by the Assyrian leaders. Instead of providing loving protection to Israel, Assyria is turned off by Israel. This is like when somebody really tries hard to be your friend, gives you all kinds of extravagant gifts, wants your respect, wants to be loved, and you're turned off by it. That's what's happening with Israel. Consider how the Western church works harder and harder on perfecting its pitch on social media while it's losing its grip on core values. This is not to say social media is evil. That's not the point. It's the idol making of it that is dangerous. Neither is this to slam bigger churches. This is true in all churches, at least having that temptation. The problem happens when ministries are bowing to the marketing plan instead of addressing primarily its character and integrity. The church is suffering from autocratic leaders becoming more and more relationally detached, believing their tweets and likes on Facebook. Verse 11, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Instead of experiencing forgiveness because of their many altars, Israel perverts the nature of worship through their idolatry and prostitution. This is all according to pagan beliefs and practices. Every sacrifice they make adds to their sin instead of being forgiven of their sin. For more than 40 years, a lighthouse stood in the 1800s on a large peninsula jutting to the Tasman Sea in southern Australia. The lighthouse was placed at the easiest spot because of its closeness to construction materials and instead of putting it in the optimal navigation site. The map that was used with where to place the lighthouse was faulty. The board that oversaw the construction was divided on its approach. 
As a result, for the next four decades, the ill-sighted lighthouse was responsible for two dozen shipwrecks. It had to be torn down. Just because one builds a lighthouse does not mean it's a good lighthouse. Just because one does a religious deed or is a part of a religion does not mean it is commendable. There's a list of diabolical movements in the name of religion that are plentiful. Charles Manson borrowed religious precepts from Satanism and Scientology to create a strange brew that led to murder. The People's Church and Jim Jones had over 900 people convinced to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and die. The Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ are more than our hope. They are the plumb line for religious truth. Everything else is measured by those. The Apostle Paul said this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He goes on to say that is the locus of our faith. And that those who reject this shipwreck their faith. We got a lot of shipwrecks today in the church because they're rejecting the truth, the clear proclamation of the Word of God. The rest of the book of Timothy is a charge to a young pastor to stay true to the church in teaching its accurately and clearly. So I think the charge to us is let us make our fellowship so familiar with the word, proclaiming the word clearly with, with humility that we can recognize truth and error. Verse 12, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. They don't need more laws. They're not obeying the ones I've given them. In spite of clear revelation from God, Israel went off into the practice of idolatry. This obviously did not please Jehovah. Therefore, judgment was going to fall. God revealed to theocratic Israel, now we're not a theocracy, Israel was, that the religious, civil, and political laws came directly from God. He instructed them about sacrifices, feasts, religious practices, diet, military and political life, and the family. He provided a moral law to guide them. Now, we have that as well. All this was treated by Israel as if these were instructions for some other nation. <laughs> and their ignorance was willful and neglectful, and they were without excuse. And for us today, this goes on. People being selective in what they want to hear from God's word. I'm not talking about obtuse verses of scripture. I'm talking about clear commands that people just don't want to follow. N.T. Wright 
notes in his book, How God Became King, that even among good Christians, our anti-royal democratic heritage makes the idea of living under a king hard to stomach. Often as believers, we wish for the kingdom, but do not want to acknowledge the authority of the king. For at the heart of kingship is the concept of authority. Authority is the surrendering of autonomy, absolute freedom, and free choice to someone else. I, I think there's this, there's this assumption made within some Christian circles that if I'm going to draw a line, state a truth, that that automatically means that I have to be jerky about it. But my friends, I think what we're after is to allow the Word of God to speak clearly, as it does, to stand on that. But to be humble, lowly, of mind, to treat people with respect, and knowing the truth does not give us cause to be a jerk to others or to reject others. Jesus was drawn to people that much of the, some segments of the Christian church rejects makes fun of, jokes about. I don't think Jesus would be participating in in any of that, do you? Verse 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Verse 13 is a repeat of the sacrifices made by Israel and it's, unacceptance to the Lord. Only this time it spells out the consequences of their rebellion. Sacrifice was instituted to forgive and remove sin, but here by Israel it was offered cavalierly. And so these sacrifices provoked God to wrath. And Egypt was a symbol of bondage. And any uh, Israelite would understand because of their past bondage in Israel, uh, past bondage in Egypt, what Egypt represented. It represented bondage. So when he said that um, they shall return to Egypt, he's saying you're going to return to bondage. Israel would be, excuse me, Assyria would be Israel's actual master. But it was just like what they remember in Egypt. All of this, I think, can create some confusion in a Christian's mind. Because we're thinking, now, wait, 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 I, I thought I was forgiven of sin. It seems that this, uh, I'm, I'm not forgiven of this. I would say a couple things. Number one is parenting has taught us this lesson. That we love our children. Nothing would cause us to cast out our children. And don't worship your children, by the way. Your children are not sinless. None of our children are, right? Right? Um, and sometimes our children sin and do wrong things, right? But they're still our children. And we don't want to be a jerk about how we approach them, condemning, but we still love them. And uh, I think that there's this, uh, there's this idea that for, for many um, 
God is going to reject us if we sin. But he's the perfect father, right? I'm an imperfect father. I don't reject my children. I may express that I'm disappointed in some things, but you don't reject them. Many of you feel rejected by God. Many of you feel like you've been put on the back pasture. That's not truth, okay? That's a concept somewhere you learned in some, maybe in a church, or you adopted it yourself, but it's dead wrong. God doesn't reject the person, all right? God loves us. God offers forgiveness for us. He's disappointed in the sin, and he forgives the sin, but he doesn't reject us. We see this in the Old Testament. What would happen? Moses did not enter into the promised land. Did Moses go to heaven? You better believe he did. But he paid a consequence for his disobedience. In the New Testament, a Christian can be bound for heaven, but they're going to reap what they sow. Right? Heaven-bound Christians will not all get the same rewards. Some will be rewarded more so because they were obedient here on earth. Some are going to experience consequences of their sin on earth. Now, not all consequences are a result of sin, but God is free to utilize consequences. Because I'm a Christian does not mean I am exempt from the consequences of running through a red light. That I'm exempt because God forgives me of sin, I'm exempt from all the consequences of eating the wrong foods. Right? Uh, And I'm an obvious result of that, right? (laughs) Or, Or that I am exempt from disobedience. God can forgive me in terms of my entrance to heaven, in terms of judging me for that sin, but there will be consequences. Galatians 6 says it this way. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So there are things that Christians do that reap to the flesh and reap to the Spirit. Verse 14 says, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, or southern portion. They're thrown in together, both guilty of this autonomy and self-sufficiency from God. They forgot that their very existence was dependent on the Lord as their maker. They were proud of their perceived prominence with the palaces and the fortresses. They put their hope in these things. Doesn't mean it's wrong to have a house. It means it's wrong to put your trust in that. That's my whole hope. That's my identity. And as a result, because Israel put its hope in these things, there would be fiery justice. Now, that does not mean hell. It means God judging them, just like in 1 Corinthians 3.13 that says our works are going to be tested by fire. Again, every time the word fire is used, it doesn't mean hell. It just means that there's going to be judgment. God is going to take a look at that. He's going to burn up the 
the works that were for ill motives and cause the good works to be maintained and to be rewarded for. That's 1 Corinthians 3.13. Whatever's from the flesh will be burned up. Whatever's from the spirit will remain. In Israel and Judah's cases, they would come under the captivity of the Assyrians and they would have their fortified cities conquered. 2 Kings 18.13 says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Hmm. There's a million different ways we could apply this today. There's some that are apparent, maybe some that are not so apparent, but I think the chief idol for me is this whole idea of our self-sufficiency. Now, there, there's a good self-sufficiency. In other words, I, I become self-sufficient for my parents when I moved out of the house. That, that's a good part. But I don't want to ever be self-sufficient from God, autonomous from God, right? Like, like I can just do things without God, without depending upon him. And humans are doing this now in spades, right? And it seems to be accelerating at a pace that like things that we would have never considered 30 years ago, and it's like, what happened? Humans thinking they can change their biological status, people seeking to be identified as animals, items of nature being declared people, as in 2019 when Lake Erie was being given personhood. Now, I have been on Lake Erie. Trust me, it is not a person. It did not speak. Now listen, I say these things, and I think the, 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 the first response is maybe condemnation for some, ridicule. This is what we have to stop. Okay? Even the joking about it. Christian today is to have compassion, not condemnation, for those who, those who fall in categories like this. Because Jesus was not repelled by these people. He was drawn to them. And so should we with the storytelling of the gospel. You know what? There is a better way to think about this. You know, God gives you value without all these other things. You don't need to have all these other things. We have something to offer them. But we have to approach them with a lowliness of mind as Jesus was a humility, and not this condemnation, this coming alongside. I don't feel it my responsibility to convince my non-Christian friends of everything they think wrong in one conversation, to point out all of their mistakes. That's not my job. My job is to love them, and as the conversation engenders it, then to bring up the gospel and to, and to talk about it. And to walk, to give that boldly and, and, and clearly. But, but there's some that have been trained on a, a type of Christianity that is rude and combative. And uh, I just don't see that. We cannot dismiss the comments rejecting, the, the, the consequences, I should say, 
of rejecting the image of God in every human being. Those have serious consequences. Uh, People who think of themselves as the arbiters of human value are the same ones who think it's okay to determine who lives and who shouldn't. This is our culture. This is very troubling. We have an answer, but we also have to face the music of what is happening. University professor Dr. Chris Gabbard used to believe that some human beings should be allowed or even encouraged to die. In his own words, Gabbard grew uh, grew up prizing intellectual aptitude and detesting poor mental functioning. This led Gabbard to adopt the ethics of the contemporary philosopher Peter Singer, who argues that society has a right to exclude people who are not persons. For instance, Singer and Gabbard believe that severely disabled people should either be killed or allowed to die. But the birth of Gabbard's son radically changed his viewpoint. During childbirth, his son experienced permanent brain damage, and today he's a blind quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Gabbard writes movingly about the first time he saw his newborn son in the intensive care unit. After his birth, I was deeply ambivalent, having been persuaded by Pete Singer's advocacy of infanticide. But there was my son, asleep or unconscious on a ventilator, motionless under a heat lamp, tubes and wires everywhere, monitors alongside his steel and transparent plastic crib. What most stirred me was the way he resembled me. Nothing had prepared me for this shock of recognition. For he was the boy in my baby pictures, the image of me when I was an infant. Today, Gabbard is an advocate for the inherent dignity of severely disabled human beings. After pointing to a 2010 Gallup poll that says that nearly half of Americans support assisted suicides, Gabbard writes, Many such well-meaning people would like to end my son's suffering, but they do not stop to consider whether he is actually suffering. At times he's uncomfortable, yes, But the only real pain here seems to be the pain of those who cannot bear the thought that people like my son exist. End quote. My dear friends, every worldview, every belief, every idol has consequences. May our storytelling And may our manner invite people to consider God as our maker and king. May we tell of his value for every human being and his offer of redemption because of our sin. Not everybody will like you. Not everybody will listen. This may be rejected by some. That's okay. Do so with lowliness of mind and humility and love. But let's make sure that we point people to the truth of God as their maker, being made in the image of God, and Jesus as their Savior. Let's pray.